making a movie physically and mentally destroys you. You know, it just, it just does. It becomes such a labor of love that sometimes we neglect to look at it as a business. People lock into this idea that there is a correct way to do things. There's not. There's a million ways to do it. Video has become the most effective way to get people to do something that it is you want them to do. It's time for filmmakers to get real with Jeffrey Michael Bays and Forrest Day Jr. We, um, we've done about 30 shows now and, uh, and sometimes we do interviews together and sometimes Forrest does interviews on his own. Sometimes I do interviews on my own. And I'm not saying that I'm a very good interviewer and Forrest definitely is a good interviewer. But there's one thing that he does, and I've been trying to stop him from doing this. Every time he does an interview by himself, he starts the long. interview. He starts the interview with, tell us about your book. <laughs> and that's because they're all authors. Stop doing it. We don't care. <sighs> Nobody cares about the book. We're not here to sell books. All right. You know, we have these guests on. Yes, they have books, but they're not on the show to tell about their book. They're here to tell us about their expertise and their knowledge and share it with us and our listeners. So I was listening to the uh, to the interview that we have coming up on the show today. Greg Lofton, mm -hmm. author of Writing for the Cut, by the right. way. <laughs> Shaping your script for cinema. Right. And guess what? Uh, guess what Forrest's first question was? Tell me about the book. <laughs> so stop it. Don't do it. It's I, I'm very formulatic with my interviews. We're trying to do really good shows. We're trying to get hard hitting interviews. And uh, we're not an infomercial. And by the way, we have a new comment on uh, on iTunes, which is accusing us of being an infomercial for publishers. So. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, oh well, I just want to make it clear that we are not getting paid. We we do not get paid for any of these interviews. We have seen no money from any of this. We do this podcast because we care. <laughs> because we really care. That's why we do this. There are sites out there like Film Courage, which is a really good example of this, that actually do charge for their interviews. And what I mean by that is that all those people you see on YouTube that are being interviewed by Film Courage... Those interviewees paid for those interviews. Those are infomercials. We are not. We are not infomercials. So the goal of our show, of our podcast, is to have these, these really good guests on that know a lot of stuff and ask them questions that we can learn from. And oh, by the way, they have a book. Every, every time I, I get a guest and I, and I do the, uh, I guess, the pitch to get them on, I always say what we want is filmmakers to listen to the episode and walk away with a little bit of information that they can use in their filmmaking. Right. And by the way, this is going to be a really good interview because I did hear it. So great job on the interview. And we also had, I think one of our best interviews was last week was Ben Yinny. Yeah, he was fun. So full of knowledge. Um, yeah. And what and and actually, I found the second half of that interview to be the most valuable. So be sure to listen all the way through. He's got so much packed in there. But mm -hmm. you know, talking about when you actually get an an investor interested in your film, 
What are the meetings like? How many meetings do you have? What do you say in those meetings? He breaks it down, and it's uh, it's interesting stuff that you don't get in uh, most places. So you would have to pay to have a class. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Uh, no lie, seriously. Yeah. When when I, after we talked to him, I was like, man, this is the kind of stuff that you'd have to pay a class. And and um, I don't know. I just here it is. Here you yeah. go. Yeah. You know, sometimes though, when you hand people the golden ring or the little nugget of information because it's free that it's like, ah, oh, it's worthless. But yeah, uh, yeah. this is the golden nuggets. And speaking of free, we actually have a prize that we're giving away. We're giving away gaffer tape. Yeah. How are we going to do that? We, do you, well, we, um, we have a trivia question and whoever the first person to get this question right, will get this gaffer tape. Okay. Now, because we have a guest coming up on on a future show that's going to be talking about gaffer tape. Um, now, what do you have the tape already, or is it still? No, we'll connect you with Marty, and then you, okay. you get your, and then they'll send it. We don't. So how we much? Don't touch... How much tape are we talking here? I don't know. I, I mean, I would say. <laughs> what a do you mean you don't know? I'll. You know what I'll do? I'll text or call Marty and find out. But. Oh, okay. So this, I mean, it's a fifteen dollar prize. At so it'll least. be a roll. So it'll be at least a roll. Let's say a roll, and then okay. you know, and then I'll talk to Marty. And <laughs> okay, so here's the trivia question: If you look on our podcast profile picture, where it says "Get Real Indie Filmmakers" and has an ostrich, there are two guys walking in a desert. What film is that from? So be the first person to answer that question. You'll get uh, you'll get this prize. First person. First person. And and so how do they answer it? Well, uh, email send us or... an email info at borgus.com. That's B-O-R-G-U-S. Yeah. So before we get to Greg Lofton, uh, there's a couple of other things that we need to address. Um, there's one news item. I just got this in my inbox this week, a couple of days ago, actually, from YouTube. Now, we... We don't follow this as much as we should, and uh, we're going to try to get an expert on YouTube to come on and talk about this at some point. But there's this whole controversy about the notifications that has really annoyed a lot of people, a lot mm-hmm. of people that are YouTube creators. They've been playing around with the subscriber thing for a couple of years now. And so they've come up with a, a new bell system this week. And uh, we tried to figure this out. We went in there. You know, we're not experts. We don't know this. But apparently the bell is now customizable. Yeah. <laughs> in, in, in a small way. This is what I got out of it. I got out of it. The bell's always been customizable. It's mm. like if I could equate it to a light switch. A light <laughs> yeah. switch is it's on, right? You got light or it's off. But so YouTube's bell was like, get notifications, don't get notifications. Mm -hmm. But now when you put it to the off position, it's either get all notifications or get some notifications. So it's kind of like the lights on bright or the lights on (laughs) dim, but you can't shut the light off. It's almost like a dimmer switch. So the the issue has always been, what's the point of subscribing if not to get notifications? So why even have a bell to begin with? And so a lot of people, what happens to the people that are already subscribed? What if your channel already has 20,000 subscribers and those 20,000 people have not clicked the bell? What about them? And the excuse that YouTube has always said in the past is that, well, they tried it. 
and too many people were getting too many notifications and unsubscribing from everything, so we decided to do this bell. Well, now, in this new video they released this week, <laughs> the kids at YouTube... <laughs> I know they look like they're like ninth graders, every one of them. <laughs> the kids at YouTube say that the reason is because they don't have enough bandwidth or computer power to actually send out all of those notifications every time somebody uploads a video. So oh. what's the real reason? I don't know. I have no clue. So that's a controversy that we'll, we'll continue to follow and we'll try to get a YouTube expert on the show and and to talk about this because I you know a lot of our audience has YouTube channels and uh, and this is an issue because um, less people are watching your videos now than, than they did three years ago. That's just a, that's a common thing that I hear all the time. So yeah, absolutely. A lot of the big channels have a lot of complaints about um, they're losing subscribers, they're losing views, and, and there's a few that I do follow. Now, when I subscribe, I notice like when I open YouTube, they're like there's like a homepage. So maybe subscribing just puts them on that homepage. But I never ring that bell because I don't want notifications because I just go on YouTube and mm-hmm. and check out the videos. So one more thing before we <laughs> before we get to Greg Lawson, wow. all of our listeners in Minneapolis, which I know we do have some. There is a big event coming on July 31st. Four screenwriters and filmmakers in the Minneapolis area. And, you know, a lot of the people we've had on the show, a lot of these authors of some of these books that you've been hearing about are going to have a a little special presentation, The Future of Story. It's a panel discussion. And that's coming up July 31st at the Playwright Center in Minneapolis. Something for our Minneapolis listeners. Isn't that where Mary Tyler Moore show was in Minneapolis? <laughs> That's before, That's before time. your time. Yeah. It, it was. I, I know I'm older than you. So we are asking the question today, what can writers learn from editors? And on the show today, we have Greg Lofton. He's a PhD. He's also a writer and director. So he's coming up next. Stay right with us. That's one thing Alfred Hitchcock was really good at, creating suspense with a camera. For the last couple of years, I've been teaching Hitchcock suspense techniques at festivals like Buffalo, St. Louis, Palm Springs, Los Angeles. Filmmakers are learning easy tricks for building suspense that are so easy to implement. Now there's a way for you to get access in my new book, Suspense with a Camera. It's available in bookstores now. And don't miss our free docuseries on YouTube called Hitch 20. That's uh, Radislav Dracovic, uh, composition of the Hitchcock theme song. We uh, always love to hear that. That's part of our Hitch 20 series, by the way. So we're asking the question today for us, what can writers learn from editors? And Greg Lofton is here. He's a director and writer. A director of an urban western, which Forrest is really interested, Saxon. We're really interested Saxon. in checking that out. Yeah, yeah. So Greg is a PhD from the University of Exeter. And he's the author of this new book, which is which is a unique book. 
about writing from the perspective of editors. It's editors teaching writers how to write visually. It's called Writing for the Cut, Shaping Your Script for Cinema, and it was endorsed by Walter Merck. How about Mm -hmm. that? Greg, thanks for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right, let's talk about your book, Writing for the Cut, and how the book is written through the lens of an editor writing a screenplay. Yeah, so I suppose that, uh, you know, screenwriters think of editors as being at the far end of the uh, production line. And, uh, you know, they, they're going to be working with the rushes that, you know, have um, shaken out of the shoot. And they're a long way, in a sense, from where the screenwriter is. And in fact, you know, you don't really often find much of a dialogue going on between screenwriters and editors. Um, you know, occasionally screenwriters get an opportunity to sit in with uh, the editor, uh, but very often they're shooed out. Uh, so... Many editor, many screenwriters, I think, have an idea of what what editors get up to, but very often, I think the the the, the view of editors is that they are engaged in the business of putting the jigsaw pieces together, or that they're they're a kind of high end plumber. Um, <laughs> but actually, the cut is all about telling the story, and what editors understand is the real, if you like, the real physics of screen storytelling, you know, that it's something that's made from fragments, that it's about uh, juxtaposition, that it's, uh, you know, about kinesis, it's dynamic, it's light, it's color, and so forth. And whilst we can think about that as screenwriters when we write our scripts, it's often quite difficult, you know, to capture that kind of dynamic in our writing. Um, so. This book really is starts off from the premise, you know, how does a screenwriter get from the word to the moving image? And what I find interesting is that you use Alfred Hitchcock as an example because um, many times throughout the book, because Alfred Hitchcock, although uh, he wasn't really a screenwriter, he was a director, but he kind of mixed the writing and the directing, like using the Kushloff effect. Yes. Uh, um, That's... I find that fascinating that you brought that up in your book because I've seen that before and it's it nails it on the head. Yeah. Uh, Kulishoff is um, one of those uh, touchstones, I think, for this whole idea about writing for the cut. And Hitchcock was a big fan. I mean, not just of... Um, Kulachoff and the Kulachoff effect, but of editing anyway. He really understood it, uh, which is why he was a master uh, of his craft. Um, there is an absolutely brilliant uh, YouTube clip which you can find online if you use the search terms Hitchcock and uh, Kulachoff you will find Hitchcock uh, giving a, a really funny demonstration of what it what it uh, what it looks like, and um, yeah, Hitchcock uh, is a mechanic. Uh, although he wasn't really a screenwriter, he was uh, the total filmmaker. So he, mm-hmm. he was the authority over all aspects of the storytelling from the script through the shoot to the edit. He he really did. He understood the entire process, which many people don't. And I find that your book um, was so useful for understanding editing. I mean, I've done a little bit of 
editing, less writing. And I thought this was interesting to get a writer in the in the mindset of an editor. And, and, and there's actually some really cool exercises in your book. You want to just briefly kind of go over some of the chapters in your book and talk about some of the exercises? Yeah. So w- one of the things, I won't go through all the chapters here. R- right. right. Bore, bore you to death. But I think at the, the heart of the book is the idea of juxtaposition, that uh, mm-hmm. the cut is always, in one sense or another, a, a, a juxtaposition of image and sound. And at that cut uh, is an opportunity uh, to, to draw the, the viewer in through, in a sense, solving the, the juxtaposition between this outgoing image and this incoming image, um, which is something that is very easy, in a sense, to, to well, certainly something that one can readily embed in our screenplays. So um, when we start to think about juxtapositions, uh, what I've done is I've, I've kind of rather nerdily, I guess, started to break down what exactly do we mean by juxtaposition and do all juxtapositions behave in the same way? And, uh, you know, I guess by examining a huge number of films, I can see that, that, that uh, there are, for me, there, there are three kinds of juxtapositions that, that break out from most films, whatever the genre. Um, mm-hmm. So one juxta- juxtaposition we might call um, suggestive. Uh, all of these juxtapositions are kind of poetic in a sense. I'm going to talk about poetry in a moment. But one kind of juxtaposition is you know, suggestive, which means that these two images that cut together or these two ideas in the writing that you have cut together, there might be a line break, another line starts, or it might be a, a, a scene break, uh, two scenes uh, um, uh, butt together. And at that cu- cut, at that moment, that break, might be a suggestion, uh, a kind of poetic suggestion. So what you're doing is you're drawing the viewer in to solve the, um, if you like, the, the ideas that you have presented to them. And uh, another kind of juxtaposition would be, you know, two, two images, two ideas that uh, create a puzzle. So mm-hmm. uh, many films work um, to draw the viewer in solving puzzles. Uh, and then the other kind of juxtaposition, I guess, which is a kind of pure cinema, is the juxtaposition of motion and emotion and um you know, the, the, the kinesis, the very heart, I guess, what makes a movie a movie. So I have, an, within these chapters, um, many exercises that will help you flex that muscle for, for, for working out these juxtapositions. So one of the things we look at, for example, is uh, the opening sequence of City of God. And the opening sequence, which looks like absolutely pure cinema and a real bravura editing sequence actually was written that way because the the writer was writing for the cut mm-hmm. so you know there's there by looking at an example of um of how you could you know of, of of an opening sequence for example one can start to pick up an idea to replicate that within your own writing um so, yeah, there, there are a wide number of, of uh, exercises that then also move into the idea of, well, you know, if we're thinking about the cut and we're writing for the cut, can we start to use the tools that editors use to actually tell our stories? So this is where we move into 
actually, maybe I can start to figure my story out using proxies um, and uh, editing images and text together and creating sizzle reels, for example. So this is, uh, you know, a, a wide span of, of um, uh, a storytelling techniques that go from the poetry of the cut through to really, uh, you know, uh, using the tools that editors use to help you uh, get in under the bonnet of screened stories. How much do you want to put into your script uh, as far as cut to this, dissolve to that? Yeah. I mean, I know you put that to a degree, but so there there are trains of thought that say, don't put too much of that in yeah. into this script. How much do you feel is good? Uh, and- I, I feel almost none of that is good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I, uh, this is, this is where, uh, directors and producers tend to feel like you're treading on other people's toes and and they're right. Right. And, and, uh, you know, we, we all understand as screenwriters, the rules of engagement, you try to keep out, you try not to include, uh, you know, production details. It takes you Mm -hmm. out of the story. Uh, so the writing for the cut is, doesn't really work that way. Writing for the cut looks for what's the bridge between the word and the moving image. Mm-hmm. And the breakthrough for me was uh, reading an interview um, with um, uh, uh, between a, a, a journalist and Walter Murch for a publication online, which you can find for a poetry magazine called Parnassus. And in that uh, conversation, he was talking about the relationship between editing and poetry uh, and how there's something about the form uh, both for poetry and editing, which is about an extraordinary economy um, Mm -hmm. and, you know, um, juxtaposition, Um, you know, what happens at the, the line break in a poem, what happens at the cut. And when you start to think about this, you then realize how apt that is for screenwriting too, that Mm -hmm. uh, screenwriting is a kind of poem. The screenplay is a poem. And that, you know, through the the kind of lyrical form uh, of of writing a screenplay through um, returns, through, you know, your action lines and the... I guess the encapsulation of images and sounds in your lines. This is what really great uh, screenwriting can look like. So the thing about writing for the cut is that it's, this is not a novel idea. This is actually how great screenwriters write. As soon as you pick up a great screenplay, you can see uh, that there is this uh, lyrical poetic quality to the writing. And that quality is pointing towards image and and the cut Mm -hmm. you know it it it, it, this uh this connection between editing and poetry is something that uh you know some great filmmakers have have picked up and articulated before so there's this great quote from uh quentin tarantino who says the first draft of the screenplay is the first cut of the movie and the final cut of the movie is the last draft of the screenplay. <laughs> that, that, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, That's awesome. It, it really does. And then people like um, uh, David Mamet, 
you know, he, 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 he's written before now how he feels that, uh, you know, he says, let the cut tell the story, you know, otherwise you have narration. So to come back to your initial question, you know, it's, it's not, of course, against the law to write cut to uh, and so forth, uh, mm-hmm. but you, uh, you often don't need to um, if the writing is good and if you understand, for example, that the outgoing shot, an image at the end of your scene and the incoming shot of the next scene that you're writing actually, you know, bust together at 124th or 125th of a second and that that's an opportunity for a cut as well. And I, uh, I'm, I'm, try- I'm searching for this part here where you gave a, a wonderful example of writing the script in an order. I, I can't find it here. Uh, but you you had the the script written and then you, it was rewritten without saying cut and and it was just putting the things in order. Yeah, writing it was uh, I can't it was before the city of God part in your book. Um, yeah, I, I I mean I I give um, several examples from real screenplays. Um, you know, there's there's a a a quote and I know it's it's one that many of your listeners will be familiar with. But if, uh, you know, if people return to that wonderful baptism scene, Godfather, you know, mm-hmm. which was um, largely written by Coppler himself, in fact, uh, and you look at that, that sequence, you know, which actually dispenses with um, the usual rules of screenwriting altogether, but, you know, is, is, a, is a, a pure rush of screen storytelling. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, to a degree, we can all do this. You know, it's it, one of the things that I do, uh, you know, I did recently with some students. Uh, I was at the, the British Film Institute and uh, we had a, a great um, uh, gathering of young filmmakers. And I was giving a masterclass on, on this idea of writing for the cut. And the exercise I set them was, um, you know, for them to write uh, the kind of haiku of um of a an action sequence so Mm -hmm. that one of the best ways of thinking about your story for the screen is actually to dispense with you know is to think how to formulate this story um without considering the the format of the screenplay in fact the 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 screenplay format can can really cramp your style to begin with so liberate yourself and write as it were a kind of haiku or a what I like to think of as a beat poem of mm-hmm. of your story, where it's you know line after line after line, but you write it out as a kind of haiku, and um, and then think about how you know you can you can uh, use some of those kind of editing techniques like parallel action um, or split edit. So you know often screenwriters won't even think or it won't occur to them this idea of a split edit. And just in case this is a term that some of your listeners are not familiar with, m- most edits uh, are are straight cuts, so the sound and picture cut together. Um, but uh, lots of screenwriters have understood the magic and beauty of a thing called a split edit. That's to say um, that that the image and the sound are staggered so mm-hmm. at the scene break for example in a screenplay you know it's often a clean break but what would 
it looked like if the dialogue from the outgoing scene spills in and over the scene, the incoming scene, and what would that produce? And, you know, this is not a novel idea. One of the um, uh, examples I give is uh, this really heart-wrenching um, sequence that comes from the Fritz Lang movie, M, where the mother has, you know, uh, is, is anxious about her daughter and uh, her daughter has not come back for tea. And uh, there's this sequence where she is very anxious and begins to call for her daughter. The, the, the way that it's written, the way that screenplay is written, is that the mother is calling for her daughter um, at the window, calling out of the window. And the, her, her calling for her daughter spills over to the next few scenes where we just see silent, empty spaces um, of, you know, the, the child's ball, the, the dinner plate where the child is not sitting, mm-hmm. the, the playground where she is not playing. And she keeps calling and she keeps calling. And it's, you know, it's a really heart-wrenching scene. Um, and that's just an example of a, of a split edit. And again, you know, this is a technique that isn't always apparent to, a, to, to screenwriters. What you want to do, what the ideal for a screenwriter, is you want to engage the viewer as participants, active participants in the storytelling, which is to mm-hmm. say you, you throw them clues and they are joining the dots and they are creating story in their own mind. And this is, a, you know, this is an immensely uh, pleasurable thing for, for viewers. There's this quote from one of the mover shakers at Pixar, which is, mm-hmm. give the audience two plus two, don't give them four. You know, l- allow them to, to calculate and calibrate. And they might be thinking four or they might be thinking five or six. But in a way, you know, we are, we are bound to do this. You know, it's, it's, it's almost a part of the human condition that we, we, we have to make sense from the coordinates that, that, you, that, that are given to us in a story. And we like it, you know. That's, that's really good advice because people like to feel smart. And when you watch a movie and if you connect the dots instead of somebody connecting them for you, you feel a little smarter and then you get more excited about the movie, at least I know I do. If like if I figure something out, yeah. Of course, you're out, you're always disappointed if you figured it out wrong. But um, yeah, because the the, <clears throat> the opposite of that is exposition, right? Which is the yep. death the death of cinema. Um, mm-hmm. So what happens with uh, exposition is that you you give the the audience, I suppose, you could say you're giving the audience a really comfortable ride because you're solving everything for them. But that gives them license to kind of curl up in the back and fall asleep. I think right. what you what you're always wanting to do is to create some kind of narrative traction where the uh, the story seems to be a bit like a runaway train for the audience and they they're always trying to catch up. Yep. Mhm. Yeah. If somebody wants to get a hold of you, can they do that? And oh yeah. How? Um they can uh, at the moment uh the best way is through Facebook, which is they just uh, go find Greg Lofton on Facebook. The book is available through Amazon.com, MWP.com, I'm sure, at Michael Weesey Productions website. Thank you for joining me today, Greg. I really appreciate you sharing your, your knowledge and information with the listeners. Thank you so much. You take care. 
great interview for us. I love that first question. <laughs> um, I'm going to ask that every time now. <laughs> Jeffrey will love this. Folks might not realize you have a show on YouTube called Rolling Tape. Yeah, yeah, edited by you. And, and I you're used to also, ask people about their books too. So. <laughs> that's right. And you're also you're also an audiobook narrator. Yes. Check it out on audible.com and look for Forrest Day Jr. and Well, we'll have a link out. in the description. So Yeah, there you go. There you go. I, li- I like to tell people that though. Jeffrey Bays, Jeffrey Michael Bays is the author of Between the Scenes, what every film director, writer, and editor should know about scene transitions and suspense with a camera, a filmmaker's guide to Hitchcock's techniques. Check those out on Amazon.com or MWP.com. And if you have ideas what you would like us to talk about on the show, tweet us at BorgasFilm or email info at Borgas.com. Bye, Blondie. Get Real Indie Filmmakers is a production of Borgas Networks, 2019.